I invite you to open with me this morning to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And I'll begin reading in just a moment, actually from verse 6. But we're going to study the first 35 verses of Acts 15. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, But thankfully, we seem to have a good amount of time to get there. So uh, we will do our best. I want you to think back for just a moment to one of the most contentious business meetings you've ever been a part of. I want you to think about that for a minute. It might have been a church business meeting. It might have been a city council meeting. It might have been some sort of homeowners association meeting. Uh, Who knows what it might have been. Maybe it was a work meeting and everybody was in trouble and there was a lot at stake. Because generally for a meeting to be uncomfortable, there generally have to be two sides on an issue and and they kind of have to be passionate about what they're arguing about and there's got to be a lot that's at stake for it to be uncomfortable. Otherwise, you just go to the meeting and it's business as usual and you agree on everything and you move on. This morning, we're going to study in Acts 15 the most important business meeting in the history of the church. Really. The single most pivotal business meeting in the history of the church happened in Acts chapter 15. Now, you probably didn't know about it, and that's okay. And the reason you probably don't know about it is because it, the good guys won. <laughs> and and, and the, the argument that was being made really paved the way for us to be able to continue to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's very important, but you didn't hear about it because, again, we don't fight about this issue very often anymore. Here's what was at stake. Grace. Grace was in jeopardy. Specifically, salvation by grace was in jeopardy. You see, there was a debate happening in the church How can a person be saved from the penalty of their sin? Now, this does have a contemporary implication for us today, and I want to illustrate that for you through a series of statements. You see, if I were to ask someone even today, how are you saved from the penalty that is due to you because of your sin? I might receive a few of these answers. Listen carefully. Somebody might say, I'm saved because I've lived a pretty good life. I've done good things in my life, and therefore there's no way that God would ever send me, a good person, to hell. I would agree with that statement. There's a problem, though. You see, good people should be saved. The problem is not a single person has ever lived the good life they think they have lived. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 The Word of God tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, there's nobody that has lived that good life. If they had lived that good life, then surely they could say, I've lived a good life and I deserve to go to heaven. But here's the second statement. Someone might say, well, I'm saved because I'm a member of the church. My name is written on the church roll somewhere and I've been a member of the church. Again, whether it's been for five minutes or 55 years That's not a good statement, and here's why. You know, I was studying our church role this past week. If you look at our church role, we have 417 members of First Baptist Church of Cave Spring. 417 people who say this is is where they've planted their roots. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen this room with even close to that number in it, right? 
And the reality is, I bet if you were to study that role as well, you would go down that list and you would say, you know, I haven't seen the fruit of salvation in that person's life. Or there's been not really any real evidence of them trusting in Jesus sincerely. And the reality is that's always been an issue. In fact, Jesus addressed this issue in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Listen to what he said. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit, he says. In other words, there can be those among us or say they're among us who really aren't of us. And then John writes about that later on in his letter, 1 John, and you can read that at some other time. And so you see, that's not a good statement either. You're, you're not saved because you're the member of a church, and you're not saved because you've lived a pretty good life. What about this third one? I might hear this. I'm saved because I believe in God. I'm saved because I believe in God. Now, that, that one sounds pretty good. I mean, you kind of got to take that step. To trust Jesus, you got to believe that there's a higher power. You got to believe in God there's a problem there as well. You see, James says this in his letter, chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. In other words, you believe that God is the only supreme God. Well, that's good, he says. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You see, believing in God is not even adequate for our salvation. So, a lot was at stake then, but guess what? A lot is still at stake now because these are answers we would likely hear if we were to ask just the average person. I fear that it could be the case that even if I were to ask some in this room, they might say these very same things. And so we need to listen carefully because there's only one answer to this question that is adequate. Why are you saved? The question is, and here it is, grace. The grace of God. That's it. No other answer holds water. According to the Bible, you are saved only by His grace. And it's called grace because you've done nothing to earn it. You see, as we arrive at Acts 15, it is grace that hangs in the balance. Now, we saw the beginning of this issue in chapter 14. And you can look back at the beginning of that chapter in verse 3 with me for just a moment. You remember this from last week. Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey, and it says there, so they stayed there a long time, and they spoke, bold, spoke, spoke boldly for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace. Remember that? And the next verse tells us that the people were divided in that place. Some were with Paul and Barnabas, and others were against them and were really seeking their head. Listen, they were divided because grace had offended them. Grace was the issue all along. You see, in our passage this morning, we see that for our missionaries, grace is worth the fight. They enter the arena of debate in defense of grace. Everything they had been doing, don't miss this, everything they had been doing as missionaries hinged on grace. That's why they were missionaries. They were teaching and preaching about the grace of God. Grace is still worth fighting for. So, so let this guide our time together. If you're taking notes or you have a listening guide, take that out. This is the main idea for us this morning. Since we have been shown grace, we should defend grace for the sake of others. Since we have experienced the grace of God, grace is worth the fight. Let me say it another way. If you and I truly understood the grace we have been shown we would put everything on the line for others to experience that very same grace. 
it's worth it. It's worth it because you've experienced it. So here's my hope this morning. I hope that we leave this morning with a better understanding of grace. We're going to walk through this debate. We're going to see both sides of the argument. And we're going to hopefully understand grace a little bit better. But then also I hope we take a huge step forward with a singular focus, a renewed focus on our mission to share grace with a lost and dying world who desperately needs, desperately needs to hear about it. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read down through verse 11, and these scriptures will be on the screen as well. The apostles and the elders, they gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And verse 12 begins this way. The whole assembly became silent. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you'll use it to further your kingdom. That you'll challenge us, you'll encourage us. Let us hear your words and your words only. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If grace is worth the fight, we need to understand why grace is important, why it's essential, why it should be precious. We see four reasons in Acts 15 that grace is precious and grace is worth the fight. The first one is this. We have a mission because of grace. We've got a mission because of grace. We've got a task to accomplish because of grace. Look with me at Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. The chapter begins, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Don't miss the gravity of the last part of that verse. They said, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty big deal when you question the basis of someone's salvation. Listen, this was taking place in the church at Antioch. Don't you remember? Chapter 14 ended with Paul and Barnabas there in Antioch. And maybe you've missed the, most of this sermon series. So let me take you back to why Antioch is important. Antioch was really the first church that was healthy and established because of the gospel. It was the first church that began to understand the missionary call. We've seen this over the past few weeks. They, they sacrificed greatly for the mission of God. It seems as though they understood. They got it, so to speak. They knew that grace was important. And yet, their very salvation was being questioned. So in other words, the most effective church in the land at that time, these men came in and says, they say, I don't know that any of you are believers at all. A couple things we can learn from this. First of all, confusion can threaten the mission. 
Confusion can threaten the mission. I want you to see how this plays itself out in verse 2. Look at that with me. It says, After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about the issue. Listen, there was a lot of confusion that had happened because of the words of these men. Paul and Barnabas knew that. They saw what was at stake. They saw the issue at hand. And listen, they were willing to fight for it. Now, we read over that quickly that they were appointed to go to Jerusalem from Antioch. But I want you to understand geography for just a moment. Antioch to Jerusalem was a journey of 250 miles. Now, they didn't have some vehicle to hop in and just ride up the road a little bit. They, they, didn't ha- they weren't going to break the sound barrier getting there either. They were going to go a hard and arduous journey to Jerusalem. Why? Because they knew the church was confused. And they knew that the mission was in jeopardy because of that confusion. Now notice what happens as we get to verses 4 and 5 when they arrive at Jerusalem. It says, when they arrived there, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But... But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it wasn't just confusion happening in the church. Notice this also, division can also threaten the mission. The church was clearly divided on this issue. Some of them were warmly receiving these words from Paul and Barnabas and their concerns. And then the other ones were saying, no, this is a big issue. This is something we need to talk about. This is worth a debate. Listen, church, we have a mission to share the message of God's grace with a lost and dying world. And just as the church then was threatened because of confusion and division. We've seen this all throughout the book of Acts. Confusion and division can threaten our mission as well. The purpose God has given us to have. We gotta have crystal clear understanding on the essentials, what we're really about. It's absolutely essential that we believe that salvation is only by God's grace alone. We are saved only by his grace And we go on mission because of his grace. Why? Because there is a world that desperately needs to hear about it. Paul and Barnabas knew that. They saw what was happening in this young church. Now, Antioch wasn't a big old church, right? It was in an out-of-the-way place. But God was doing a significant work there. Paul and Barnabas knew that. And they were willing to stand in and fight That leads us to the second reason grace is important. We know the author of grace. We know who established grace as God's people. We know that God has set grace in place for our benefit, our good, and his glory. You see, in these verses, verses 6 through 21, we kind of have the heart of the debate happening here. They're in Jerusalem with the church. Everyone, it says in verse 6, is gathered together to discuss the issue. I read that a moment ago. And although I'm sure others had some things to say, in verses 6 through 21, we really just hear from a few individuals. And we're going to look at what they have to say. We hear, first of all, from Peter. 
He's the, the common person we would hear from. Peter always has something to say. In this case, he's saying the right things. He didn't put his foot in his mouth on this occasion. And then we have Paul, again, someone we would expect to hear from. And then we have James. He talks a little later on. So here's basically what each of them argue. If you want to understand what all of them are saying, it's this. Grace is God's prerogative. Grace is God's prerogative. Grace is something that God has established. Listen, grace isn't something invented by our imagination. It's not just a crutch for us to lean on as God's people. No, it's not wishful thinking, and it's not a clever way of talking about our relationship with God. It's not man's way of dodging God's standards either. God is the author of grace. So let's notice what Peter says first in verses 7 through 11. We see that God chose grace. God was the one who chose to show grace. I read this a moment ago, so I'm just going to go through it very quickly now. Make note of these places in verses 7, 8, and 9, where God is clearly making a choice to show grace. In verse 7, we see this, God made a choice among you. Do you see that in verse 7? It says, God made a choice. In verse 8, it says, God knows the heart. And, And read into that a little bit and understand God knows the depravity of our heart. That's what that means. God knows how much we need him. He knows the brokenness of our hearts because of sin. Verse 8, we continue. It says that God gave the gift of the Spirit. Again, God's prerogative, God's choice, God's mission. In verse 9, God chose not to play favorites. In other words, God said, listen, salvation is available to everyone because of grace. You see, obviously what Peter had said arrested their attention. And and in the crowd there, we see that in verse 12. I read it, just the beginning of that verse. Look at it with me again, though. It says, the whole assembly became silent. In other words, you could hear a pin drop after he spoke. Everybody knew, listen, this is a big deal. This is something we got to talk about. This is worth the debate. And so then we see Paul and Barnabas explain this next truth. You see, God had chosen grace, but also God demonstrated grace. He demonstrated grace. You see, it's funny that we've really heard over the past few weeks a lot from Paul and Barnabas, but here they just get one verse. Look at verse 12. It says, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We don't even have direct quotes from Paul and Barnabas here. We get one verse. This is all they talked about. And that's significant. Listen, they were telling the crowd what God had been doing among them and through them. They were testifying of their experience. Listen, in chapter 13, remember, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Remember, Paul, with a word, he had struck a sorcerer with blindness. Someone who was opposing their message. And and, and in this miraculous event, he was struck with blindness through the words of Paul. And so, yeah, he was testifying of that, no doubt, among this crowd of people in Jerusalem, among the mother church, if you will. In chapter 14, we saw this last week, Paul healed a lame man, a miraculous activity, evidence of God's goodness and grace at work, telling these stories again and again, and and perhaps others that we don't even have recorded here. They were telling of all the things God had been doing through them. Our experience is important as we testify to grace. Don't miss that. 
our experience of God's grace is sometimes the most powerful testimony that we can show to others of how good that grace is. I encourage you to think about your testimony for a moment. Think about your brokenness. Think about before you knew Jesus. Think about how messed up and broken you were before then. Think about the goodness that he had shown to you. Think about the joy you felt when you knew that because of his grace, you were not going to have to pay the price for your sin. And as you think about that, think about those who don't have that same testimony. They don't know that same grace. I encourage you to brag about this. Let people know the grace of God in your own life. Those of you with lost family members, listen, talk about this. Share this with them. Those of you who have spouses who don't know the Lord, tell them about the grace of God in your life. Those of you who have children who don't know the grace of God, listen, remind them again and again of how you've been shown grace. It's a powerful testimony to share. So God demonstrated grace, but then thirdly, we get to James, we see that God proved grace. He proved it. In other words, he put a stamp on it. He said, this, this is what it's about. This is important. You see, James takes the debate in a new direction as we get down to verses 13 down through verse 21. Now understand that James is a unique voice in this. We haven't heard from him in a while, so I want to remind you of who James is. James, we find in Scripture, was the brother or the half-brother of Jesus, actually. And so he knew Jesus best. He knew Jesus. And we, we learned uh, when we were studying the book of James, which is the same one here, we learned then that he was one of the last ones of the apostles to trust Jesus as Savior. In fact, it was only after his resurrection from the dead that he said, you know what? I understand now, and I believe that he is the Savior. And so James is important. He had become a pillar in the Jerusalem church. He was their pastor. He was the voice they were going to listen to. So what James had to say was very important in this debate. I dare say if James wouldn't have spoken up, I don't know that the outcome would have been the same. Notice verse 14. It says, Simeon has reported how God first intervened. By the way, Simeon, that's another name for Peter in this place. So Peter has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. Don't read over that too quickly. A people for his name. You see, this audience that James was speaking to here, they had a very Jewish background. And they would have understood the significance of that statement. It's lost on us, and that's okay. But I want you to understand what they would have heard. You see, as Jewish people, they would have thought about Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Maybe write that in the margin of your Bible there. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. This is what they would have thought of. You see, Moses says here, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. You see, God was speaking through Moses to the Jewish nation, and he was saying, You are my people. The Lord your God, listen, has chosen you to be his own possession. And so when James says, God is calling a people for himself, everybody in that room pumped the brakes and said, wait a minute, we're God's people. 
Uh, Isn't that what Moses said back in Deuteronomy, that we're God's people? What are you talking about, James? What do you mean that these other people are God's people? That, That just can't be. Listen, James was helping them see how the grace they had been shown as God's chosen people is the same grace God wanted to show others. Here's why that's important to us. We have been shown grace to then show others grace. You're not given grace as a, as a gift to hold on tightly and to tuck away and hide under your pillow. No, listen, you are given grace to freely and openly share that with others, to testify of God's grace in your own life. Now look at verses 15 through 17. James continues speaking. He says, in the words of the prophets, notice this, agree with this. They agree with this. As it is written, after these things, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. I won't read all the way through that, but listen, what he's talking about here in verses 15 through 17 is he's quoting the prophets of the Old Testament. That's why in your Bible, that part may be kind of set off to the side a little bit. Maybe it's in bold print or it's kind of, it's indented further than everything else because this is a quotation from the Old Testament. You see, James is quoting from Amos and Isaiah here to show how the prophets agree that grace has always been God's plan. He was telling them this is no new thing. Grace is important, and again, it's God's prerogative. You see, God did a work in the hearts of all those present through the words that had been spoken. So by the time we get to verse 22, and we're going to move quicker from this point forward, we see this. We have fellowship because of his grace. So this is kind of the product, if you will, of this debate. So by the time we get through verse 21, the debate has concluded. Everyone has spoken. We've heard uh, Peter's side of the argument. We've heard Paul and Barnabas talk. We've seen James speak, and the issue seems to be settled by the time we get to verse 22. So look with me at verse 22. It says, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church... That's important. The whole church, that means there was some unity here. They decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. So here's what the church decides to do. They decide to to set aside some people, some men, to go with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. Now, again, let's not forget, that's a 250-mile journey. So they've, they've traveled all the way to Jerusalem. They've had this debate, and now they're going to go all the way back again. And the church says, listen, Paul and Barnabas, don't go by yourselves. We're going to send these other two gentlemen with you. Now, very quickly, let's consider who these guys are as we consider this truth. God ordains leaders to wisely protect the fellowship. God puts leadership in place in the church to protect the fellowship, to watch over the fellowship, to shepherd the fellowship. Judas is mentioned here. Now, this is not the Judas that betrayed Jesus, okay? By this point, he's, he's dead and gone. This is an entirely different one, but God bless him for his name, right? You, got, you know that had to be a hard life in the church. Can we just say that? I mean, really. That's why, I think that's why it says Judas also called Bersabbas, which is, again, a great name, right? He said, don't call me Judas. Call me this other name. Let's, let's forget about that one. But here's what's interesting about this guy. This is the only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible. Now, how about that? 
in this most critical chapter of the Bible, at this most critical turning point for the church, this is the only time he comes up. He doesn't give any important speeches like Peter. He doesn't preach great sermons like Paul. And he's not a great missionary like Barnabas. He's only mentioned here. That's important. Listen, God is using people in his church that may not be the most prominent people. They don't got to have the loudest voice or the greatest reputation. God's using them in ways that should not be underestimated. Silas is mentioned here as well. Now, Silas, you probably know about him. Paul and Silas, they get thrown in jail together, so you remember that story. But up to this point, he had not been mentioned either. So this is the first time we find Silas. And so these two folks come to the, out of the fray, so to speak, and now they're with Paul and Barnabas, these heroes of the faith in the church. You had to think they felt pretty special at this moment. And God says, through the church, these are the leaders I'm going to send with this important letter to deliver this all-important news. So here's what happens in verses 23 through 30. There's a letter recorded there. And I won't read all of it to you, but you can read it yourself. It just says, from the apostles and the elders and your brothers. And that lists the people that have came to testify to this letter. And then at the end of it, it says, listen, we've heard about these people that put a burden on you that what wasn't justified. So here's all we ask of you. Notice what they say. Verse 28. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision. I love that. And ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. I'll explain some of the strange parts of that list in a moment. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Listen, God ordains leaders, but listen, God also calls us as the church to wisely show grace within the fellowship. And so it's not just up to these leaders to, to demonstrate this grace. The church is asked here, the church at Antioch specifically, you have to show grace as well. You've got to have some wisdom about what you're doing. Now again, the conditions mentioned here, they're not you know, tied to their salvation. It's not tied to their eternal security with the Lord. These are just acts of mercy and graciousness. You've got to understand, the church at that time was mostly made up of Jewish people who had then converted to Christianity. So they were kind of a combination of both. So they, they held on to their rituals, and these things that are mentioned here that I just read to you, that was part of their ritual understanding. And you can look at the Old Testament to see that that's what they believed they should be doing. And so what the church has told the church at Antioch is, listen, you've got to, you've got to show grace to them because you have these strange practices, and you're going to make it hard for everyone else, so y'all got to kind of make a compromise, so to speak. Think about it like this. Sometimes you can be in the company of other people and unintentionally make things more difficult for them. I'll tell you this. Dieting is hard. Y'all agree with that? Being on a diet is really difficult. Now, I shared with y'all a while back how my wife and I were on a weight loss journey, and the thing we chose to do, and I've held this kind of close to my chest a little bit, we were... We were vegetarian for a while. And yes, I know there are some cattlemen in the room that want to stone me right now. But that's what we chose to do. Cleve, don't throw something from the balcony. He's shaking his head. But listen, that's what we chose to do for a while. And we had great success losing weight. And I remember when, when we would go to my mom and dad's house for supper or something, mom would always ask, what can I fix y'all for dinner? I don't want to offend you, and I don't want to make this any harder on you than it already is. Why did she do that? 
She did that as an act of grace. She said, I'm not going to make a big juicy cheeseburger for you because I know you'll want to eat it. And guess what? They didn't eat it in front of us either. Now, my dad probably did after we left. But, but listen, that was an act of grace. That's what's happening here. They are telling the church, you've got to extend some grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ because it will help the fellowship be happy. And so extend grace to one another. Finally, we have joy because of grace. We got joy because of grace. We got a mission. We know the author of grace. We've got fellowship because of grace. And finally, we have joy because of grace. Verses 30 through 35. Listen, church, when there is joy, the church is able to move forward in ways that are so healthy and so edifying. Notice what they're able to do. Joy moves disciple-making forward. Notice what happens in verses 30 through 35. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, so they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly... They delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. I want you to underline long message. I want you to remember anytime I preach over 30 minutes, there is biblical justification for a long message. That's what happened here. But here's what's really going on. Disciple making is happening. Right? They didn't just deliver the letter and read it to them and they rejoiced. No, they stuck around and they said, we're going to continue to teach you. We're going to continue to strengthen you and encourage you. And notice what happens in verse 35. It says, but Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, they remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of God. They were making disciples. Listen, they didn't just send this letter via snail mail. Right? Uh, they didn't just type up an email and send it to them. They didn't deliver it by a pigeon somewhere. No. They went personally 250 miles to stand before these people to read this letter, to see their joy, and then to hang out with them and continue to teach them. That's disciple making. But notice this finally. There's a little detail here that sets us up for next week. Notice what else happens when joy is moving us forward. Joy moves the mission forward. It moves the mission forward. The church keeps going because there's joy. And there's joy because there's grace. And there's grace because of Jesus. And when we anchor ourselves in all of that, the mission of God can't help but move forward. When the people of God are so enamored with the grace of God, the mission of God has to move forward. It's got to keep going. There's no other alternative. Their work was not done. And our work is not done. We find in chapter 16 that the missionary journeys keep going because the work wasn't finished. Neither is ours. Don't think that we're ever done in Cave Spring. Listen, I had a, a pastor friend tell me this one time. He's been in ministry a long time. And I was in a season of discouragement. He said, Jared, let me encourage you with something. Pastoring is a perpetually incomplete task. It's never done. You're always going to have something to do. You're always going to have someone to minister to. Always have a flock to shepherd. Church, listen. We have a never-ending task as well. 
Until the Lord returns, our task is not done. I did some research to prove this to you. I know we sometimes think of Cave Spring as a small place. And it is. So we have one red light and a couple police officers that ride around and not a lot happens in Cave Spring. It's quiet. We love that about it. But I did some research to extend our borders just a little bit, to think a little bigger in terms of God's mission. And so I I studied how many people live within a 15-minute drive of this church. Now, some people far more intelligent than me put together the software to, or the online database to search this information, and, and I searched it. Did you know there are 11,480 people that live within 15 minutes of this church? Almost 11,500 people live within 15 minutes drive of this church. And some of you drove further than that to get here this morning. The mission is not done. Here, here's another way we know that. Of those 11,480 souls that live within 15 minutes of this church, only 28% of them attend religious services regularly. Only 28%. Only a quarter of them attend any church of any kind of any denomination. That means... 75% of those people, I dare say, don't know this grace that we know. Our mission is not done. As we look across this room and you see seats that are empty next to you, I want you to be reminded of that. The mission hangs on your shoulders as well. Think of the people you know that don't know this grace. Think of the people that are in your family who don't know this grace. Think of the people in your workplace who don't know this grace. And share this grace with them before it's eternally too late.